What a great Mother's Day. You can all be seated. Open your Bible to Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at the opening 14 verses of Matthew 24 this morning. And before I came to be called your pastor, I had the privilege to serve a church in Kentucky along with the bishops. We served together in that church. And the building of Buck Run Baptist Church had to be situated in probably the most beautiful site I've ever seen for a church building to exist. It was situated on the banks of the Elkhorn Creek. And it was a stunning place. In fact, I can still hear the bubbling of the creek in my, in my head as I would show up every day for work and find my physician, you know, walk into the church. It was just amazing to be able to see that beautiful creek and the water would flow down the creek. And while it would, you would occasionally see a, a kayaker or a canoe come by or someone who was catching smallmouth bass. And it was just a beautiful, picturesque place for a church to exist. The only problem was it was located in a floodplain. And that meant that any time that the banks of that creek would overflow, these, this 20-mile creek that would dump out in the Kentucky River, if the conditions were just right, it would bring havoc on that church building. And while I was there, I avoided most of the havoc, but right after I left, it hit in a big way. The pictures were incredible how that entire region where the church was located just flooded. There was nothing that could be done to protect the church from the flood, and it was completely vulnerable to it. And since it was located on that floodplain, the question as to whether or not it would flood was never a question of if, it was always a question of when. And I share that with you because it's a wonderful metaphor to set up what we're going to be talking about today as we think carefully and biblically about what the Scripture teaches about the return of Jesus Christ. Because when you think about Jesus' return, it's not a matter of if. It's simply a matter of when. And even on the occasion when Jesus is ascending into heaven, as Pastor Ron started our service by quoting from Acts chapter 1, the angels who were there looking at the disciples while they were gazing up into heaven, not knowing then what to do, that angel, those angels looked at those men who were standing there and they promised them that this Jesus who was taken up from them into heaven was going to return to them the same way that they saw him go. So this morning, I want us to talk about this matter of the return of Christ. And we're going to study the sermon that Jesus delivered on the side of the Mount of Olives while he was looking down on the great temple of Jerusalem. And the text of it's often called the Olivet Discourse. It's found in Matthew's Gospel in chapters 24 and 25. And as we learn of Jesus' return, what we're going to see from these verses is the absolute certainty that Christ will indeed come back. And that's the reason I've entitled this sermon series, Perusia. In simple terms, the word parousia is just a cool-sounding theological term that describes the second coming of Jesus. And in my experience, the differences in how Christians interpret what the Bible teaches about parousia, it really focuses on two main areas of debate. And the first is that Christians land in different places regarding what the Bible teaches in Revelation 20 about the thousand-year reign of Christ. 
This is a period of time, according to Revelations, that Satan is going to be bound. Now, some want to believe in what's called the view of premillennialism, and that view believes that Jesus will return before the ushering in of this thousand-year reign. Postmillennialists, they locate Jesus' return at the end of this thousand-year reign. And amillennialists, they don't hold to a literal thousand years. They view it to be figurative. And they believe that the ascension of Jesus ushered in this thousand-year reign, this period of time, and that we are in that period of time right now. Now, that's one of the issues that surround the return of Christ where people come down in different places. The other issue that Christians often differ is around the issue of the rapture, that Jesus will return coming in the air to rescue his church. And some view rapture will happen at the beginning of a seven-year period of great tribulation. Others believe that the rapture will happen at the end of that seven-year period and the church will have to endure it. Some even believe that it will happen in the middle of that seven-year period. And some people want to hold that there is not even a rapture at all. And in the coming weeks, we're going to touch on these questions that Christians have different views on. But can I tell you, that is not going to be the emphasis of our look at this text. If you really want to know the answers to a lot of these questions in detail, you're going to have to come back in the fall when we pick back up our study in the book of the Revelation and we walk through that book and that study together. The questions that we seek to answer as we look at Matthew 24 and 25 are going to be considerably different, though I would argue with you that they are just as important, if not more so. Here are the questions. Are you ready for anything that might happen in your life within the next year? And if Jesus does not return within the next year, let's say he tarries for five or ten years or even longer, and you are giving those years to live, are you going to trust Jesus through the events that will happen to you and will happen in this world during those five or ten years or beyond? And here's another question we'll have to face as we study what Jesus teaches. Are you certain that when he does return, you are ready for that return and you will spend an eternity then with him in heaven? These are questions that Jesus obliges us with answers and they come to us right out of the gate of this sermon. Won't you read them with me? Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of the coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, for the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. 
Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Can't you almost hear the whispers of Jesus' disciples? Mark's gospel tells us that the disciples looked down from the mountain and the whole discussion began when they looked at Jesus and they said, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what a wonderful building. And the temple was likely the most awe-inspiring building of the ancient world. Some of the stones that made up the temple measured 40 feet long, 12 feet wide, and 12 feet deep, and each of these stones weighed over 200,000 pounds each. Herod's rebuild of the temple completed just a few decades prior to this message that Jesus delivers on the top of the Mount of Olives. It took over 46 years for him to finish the renovation. And Jesus says here, before there ever was a weapon of mass destruction that not one stone of this magnificent, majestic temple would be left on another. And what a message for us today. The things of this world, the things that we build, the things that we're so proud that we have made, they will pass away, according to chapter 14, verse 35, along with the heavens and the earth. But Jesus' eternal words will never pass away. And when that day comes, entrusting ourselves to our trustworthy, prophesying, sovereign king is the only way that we will be ready for that day. So as we look at these 14 verses opening up this incredible sermon, this is the takeaway that I want you to consider as we wrap ourselves, our minds around what Jesus teaches. Disciples of Jesus respond to his prophecies with faithful living and passionate witnessing. Now, if you're in need of a good laugh, which if you have watched the news in recent days, or if you're weathering a hard season, sometimes a good laugh just helps, right? Well, if you're in need of one, I encourage you to watch an older movie about time travel and see how wrong their vision for the future proved to be. Not long ago, I did this. I watched the first 10 minutes of a movie from my childhood, Back to the Future, Part 2. Part 1 is good. Part 2 is not that good. And if you want to watch Part 2 of Back to the Future, I encourage you, just take the time to watch the first 10 minutes. It's enough. But it is hilarious. Marty, the main figure in Back to the Future, when he shows up in that famous DeLorean, if you catch it at the beginning of the movie, he then travels forward from the time that he gets into that DeLorean in 1985 to the far off time of 30 years ahead to that way far off year of 2015. And back then when Steven Spielberg pictured that year, 
He pictured within that year a world filled with self-drying clothes that adjusted their fit to your body after you put them on. And he envisioned not just cars, but flying cars. And yes, they traveled in interstates, but not interstates on the ground. They were interstates in the air, highways and lanes in the sky. And when you watch this and you see what Steven Spielberg's future looked like or what he envisioned it to be, it lets you know without any uncertain terms, you cannot trust Hollywood. They don't know much. But just because you cannot trust Hollywood, thankfully, you can trust in Christ and what he has to say for the future. And the first thing that he tells us in chapter 24 is we need to prepare for deception. Jesus says, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come to you saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. Even when I read these words of Christ, it's very natural for our minds to be drawn to the horrific memories of figures like Jim Jones and David Koresh. But while they're awful to think about, the Joneses and the Koreshes of this world, since Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light, the worst forms of deception are often way more subtle than these. Many, like the prosperity gospel preachers of Joel Osteen and Paula White, they come closer to the real gospel, but they do not preach a real gospel. Their message defines God's blessings in our lives as a growing bank account or as the absence of human suffering. And if this is what you believe in and this is all you believe in, it will lead to the same horrific eternal separation from God as the David Koresh's and the Jim Joneses of this world. I like the way that the Christian artist and theologian Shai Lenz describes these false teachers. He says, some who claim to be a part of the sheep have really sharp teeth. And you know why that's true? The Bible warns us they are actually wolves in sheep's clothing, and we need to guard ourselves against them. So how do we know the difference for those who lead us astray and those who lead us to the truth? Well, I think the best way is to consider the way that our U.S. government goes about the business of making sure that the U.S. bills that are being used in our economy and in currency are actual money or are actual notes that come from the U.S. government. And the way that they do this and how they identify counterfeit bills is a very intriguing thing to, for us to consider this morning. Do you know the way that we train up people to make sure that the money that's in print is not a counterfeit dollar bill? Let me tell you what they don't do. They don't send a team of people into a studio and look under the glass mirror or under a magnifying glass every single example of what has been a successful counterfeit in order to know all of the successful efforts out there so that you know what it looks like when you see a counterfeit. That is not what they waste their time doing. What they do instead is a much better approach. They train up a team to understand the U.S. dollar bill with such clarity. They know it so well that any time they engage something other than that dollar bill, they know the difference. So listen to me. Don't get overwhelmed in thinking that what you must do to guard yourself against deception is know every false teaching that's out there. It might help to know the enemy's tactics, but listen, more than that, 
We need to be a church committed to the true gospel, the pure gospel, understand it in its authentic version, the way that it is delivered to us in the Bible, so that any time we come up against anything other than the true gospel, we know the difference. And what seems to be the common theme today in our world today is if you hear about a gospel that promises the crown without the cross, it's a false gospel. If you hear about a gospel that, according to Philippians 3.10, Paul said, My purpose in life is to know Christ, the power of the resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in the suffering. You cannot know the power of a resurrected Christ if you don't also share in the sufferings that come along with knowing that power. Those two things go together. So we have to be a people that are ready and prepared for deception. It's everywhere, and we Get ready for it by knowing and understanding and believing and living in the true unadulterated gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That which Paul delivered was of a first importance. Christ died for our sin, according to the scripture, was buried and was raised from the third day. Anything outside of the work of Christ to bring salvation is a false gospel. We need to know it. Be prepared. Deception is there. But along with being prepared for deception, Jesus also tells us we need to be prepared for dystopia. False teachers will lead many astray, but that is not all the trouble that we will face as we move closer to the parousia, the second coming of Jesus. Because Christ goes on to say, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nations will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes. Well, I use the word dystopia from these verses because it describes the mounting challenges, church, that our children and our grandchildren are going to face. Dystopia describes an imagined state where there is great suffering and injustice. When we think about what's going to happen as we move closer to the return of Jesus, it is hard to speak against using this word. Just think of all of the supposed advancement of the 20th century. How it's supposed to move us into a state of enlightenment and betterment. But while we have moved in that way, we can't avoid the darkness that it's created. Wars and rumors of wars? There have been more deaths on the battlefield in the 20th century than in the 1st or the 19th century after the birth of Christ, all put together. And the rumored threats of Iran... The concern of nuclear threat of North Korea, these things are real. And when you add to them the awful catastrophic natural disasters we've endured, like in 2004, the tsunami that overtook Southeast Asia and killed hundreds of thousands. And when you think about even the hurricane that swept our own country, Hurricane Katrina that devastated Louisiana, when you think about all the earthquakes that are happening in the world, have you ever been to Haiti? Have you ever been to Port-au-Prince? Not before the earthquake that devastated it, but afterwards. And I went years later, and people are still, years after the event, living in tents. Because though we might have sent the money, corruption kept them from getting to the people. And the people are in utter misery. Jesus says this dystopia will accompany life as we move closer and closer to his return. So we could build bunkers. In our backyards, we could stockpile toilet paper and canned goods. We did that too not, long, not too long ago. 
But I don't think that Jesus tells us these truths ahead of time for this to be our primary response. Because more than prepare our supplies, Jesus wants us to prepare our hearts and to prepare our minds. And that is where the gospel of Jesus Christ comes into focus. One of the most captivating observations from history is the effect of the gospel in the world and how the gospel has always penetrated the darkest of life's circumstances. Kyle Harper, a historian who studied ancient pandemics, was one time asked why Christianity flourished in the face of bleak times. And this is how he answered. For Christians, it was a positive program. Listen to this. This life was always meant to be transitory and just part of a larger story. What was important to the Christian was to orient one's life toward the larger story, the cosmic story, the story of eternity. They did this in this world, experienced pain, and loved others. But the Christians of that time were called to see the story of this life as just one of the stories in which they lived. And listen to how he ended. The hidden map was the larger picture. You cannot miss what he is saying if you have read your Bible from Genesis to Revelation. All the way through from the very beginning, we see undoubtedly the kindness of God. It is always on full display. But I want you to hear me. We see the kindness of God on full display, not only in what is pleasant, but also in what is unpleasant. If not for being enslaved was Joseph, if not for the avoidance of famine as he rose to the second of authority in Egypt, the people of God would have never survived. It took famine, it took slavery for people to exist. That is the kindness of God. Our women are studying the book of Ruth. A book filled with tragedy and death and famine. And if not for those things, Ruth would have never been a part of the very genealogy of the Son of God. God's kindness is seen in that which is unpleasant along with that which is pleasant. Not only do we see his kindness and prosperity, we also see it in poverty. God is, church, the master cartographer. That's a big word that says that God is the one who is drawing up the maps of his creation. And Psalm 16, verse 5 is always true. Our lines do fall on us in pleasant places. And you want to know why? Even when life is heartbreaking, because the psalmist continues, we have a beautiful inheritance. So prepare for deception. Prepare for dystopia and prepare for discrimination. Verses 9 through 12 lets us know that our blood as believers in the Lord Jesus will be shed. We have seen this in our country's history as for the sake of liberty and freedom. We have given our lives on the battlefield to protect our freedom How much infinitely times over do we give our lives for the eternal cause of the gospel and of Christ by being faithful and obedient to him no matter what? Jesus says they will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death. 
And the stage is presently being set. Before World War II in the 1930s, when Winston Churchill spoke of his growing concern of this German leader named Adolf Hitler and the Nazi regime that he was raising, Churchill could not believe at that time in the 30s that Europe as a whole was turning a blind eye to the escalating trouble that was coming. And after World War II, he wrote six huge volumes of his take on the history of the war. In the first volume, he wrote extensively on Europe's denial of the threat of Germany. And he entitled the volume, The Gathering Storm. So Dr. Moeller has written a book called The Gathering Storm. Largely motivated by this insight of Winston Churchill. And can I just agree with Dr. Moeller? The storm is gathering. The airplane of forced secularization within our country has already left the runway. Are you paying attention to what's happening in the world right now? I heard just this past week that in the state that I ministered before coming here, the state of Kentucky... They have, it just as we have our children's homes here in the state of Georgia, Sunrise Children's Services that help link up adopted children with their moms and dads is no longer in existence because the state told them they could not practice a religious liberty and stand upon the way the Bible defines family and be a part of adoption in that state any longer. That happened this week. More and more, Whenever the church steps out into the public arena and the public sphere, we will be met with this kind of ridicule and discrimination and told to either shape up and join the party or get out of the town. And so when Dr. Moeller was fight, writing about what was happening there in the state of Kentucky this week, this is what he said, and I just want to give it to you and I want you to think about it. The momentum towards secularization in this country will not stop until every religious agency that has any connection with the public square is forced to recant of those religious convictions and join the revolution and get in line. So the pressure is coming from outside of the church against the church, but Jesus says it doesn't stop there. He also says in this text it comes from within the church. Verse 10 says that many within will fall away, will betray one another, and will hate one another. As the pressure mounts, rather than trust in the Lord and the power of the gospel, many self-proclaimed Christians in the pew would rather trust themselves and stand against those things. And as they trust themselves, Jesus warns that the love of many will grow cold. Doesn't this sound like a line straight out of Tolkien's Lord of the Rings? So how do we protect against the chill? How do we make sure as the church of the Lord Jesus that we heed the words that Jesus gives? Kentucky was a lot colder than it is here. There were days that we would be outside, it would be seven below, and we'd be going to church. 
I remember how cold that chill was. Have you ever been in sub-zero cold? It hurts. And the best thing to do when you've been out in the cold of a day like that is to come into the house and warm yourself by the fire. And Church of the Lord Jesus that we call First Baptist Church Smyrna, we need to have the heat of fellowship and the heat of love to warm, our, warm ourselves against the coldness of the world that we live in that will only come when we act like brothers and sisters ought to act and be. The best solution is the fellowship of the church, the coldness of those outside of it, to the onslaught of those from within will hurt it. We've got to be the true church that live out the gospel and how we care for one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus. We've got to lay our preferences aside. This is wartime, church. Paul talks about it in different terms later on in his epistle to Timothy. He says, don't get caught up in civilian affairs because the battle is here. It changes the way you think about things. You've got to be anchored to only the things that matter the most. And when we stay there, it will strengthen the warmth of our fellowship. We will be there for one another, come what may, through thick and thin. As we give our lives for the sake of the gospel if necessary, the church will rise. So how do we protect ourselves against this kind of invidious discrimination? We simply be the church. So there will be some that fall away. It says in verse 13, as he has all of these hard things to say, he then tells us, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. We need to come along each side of each other and help each other get through the end and finish the race well. And then I want you to notice what he says next. After preparing against deception and preparing against dystopia and preparing against discrimination, he says in verse 14, this is the ultimate sign. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So what are we then to do? Along with preparing, we share the gospel we have to anchor our lives to Christ to endure to the end, and we pursue our mission. Every nation must be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and then the end will come. There's lots of healthy discussion about what this text means. The primary question many people want to ask is, how will we know? How will we know that all the nations have been reached? It's an interesting question. But instead of asking that and fixating on that answer, I want you to think of it differently. The parousia, the second coming of Jesus, has yet to happen. So the task is obviously not yet done. When it is done, Jesus will come. He's not come, so it is not finished. Until he returns, there is work to be done throughout all the world. We've got to get busy. We've got to fulfill our mission. We've got to go across the street to our neighbors. We've got to go across the world to those places that are hard and need Christ and take the gospel to them to fulfill our mission while we still can. Because after he comes, the opportunity will no longer be there for people to be saved. We've got to share the gospel. And can I encourage you how proud I am for the way that you as a church family are committed to this endeavor, I want you to watch this video.
Hello, Smyrna First Baptist Church. I'm Kevin Ezell, president of the North American Mission Board. On behalf of all of our missionaries, I want to say thank you. Thank you to my good friend, Pastor Jeff, and everyone there for your amazing gift of over $43,000 to the Annie Armstrong Easter offering. Wow, that is more than double your goal. Every dollar of that will be spent on the mission field to help take the gospel to North America. We are grateful for your partnership and your generosity. Thank you so much. Right now, this very second, in a big city like New York or in a small town in Canada, on a military base in Texas or on a college campus in California, there's a new church starting. There's a homeless man discovering someone sees him really for the first time and cares about him. Maybe there's a, a mom, a dad, a little boy, a little girl who's hearing the gospel for the very first time. Right now, today, the mission is moving forward. And because of your generosity, you are helping make it happen. We just want to say thank you again. All of our missionaries are able to do what they do because you have provided the resources to start new churches everywhere for everyone. They have what they need to provide food and shelter for families who don't even have the basics of life. People are responding to the gospel and God is using your gifts to build his kingdom. Even when it's hard, especially when it's hard, it's important to know this is what happens when we are faithful. The mission moves forward. Hmm. So we do it in our giving. We leverage everything in our life to making sure that the gospel is taken to the ends of the world. Isn't that encouraging? You know, this past week was a hard week for me. I said goodbye to one of my mentors in the ministry who I deeply love. I got to preach his funeral in Louisville. His name was Eddie Hatfield. Dr. Hatfield poured his life into me. We would meet often over a pastry. There never was a pastry he didn't like. And while we would eat chocolate eclairs together, he'd just pour into my life. Well, I wrote half of my dissertation in his basement, and... On one particular occasion, I went into his kitchen because they gave me free access to everything just to come as I wanted. And I noticed that the kitchen light was out. So I reached up and I grabbed a chair and I promised them I could help them get the light bulb in their fixture. And I unscrewed just one of those kind with the screw at the bottom, you know. But the whole time you're thinking, you're like, I hope I don't drop this. And I unscrewed it and I took off the bulb and I took out the old light bulbs, replaced them with new ones, and I stuck that bulb up, and very carefully, as skillfully as I could, I put that back on there. I called them in and said, look what I was able to do, and I flipped the switch, and boy, the light came right on. And two weeks later, I was back at their house, same kitchen. They've got a new fixture in their house. They'd never told me that they were redecorating, I asked Dr. Hatfield, why'd you get a new fixture, if you don't mind me asking? And he just laughed out loud. He said, Jeff, about five days after you left, we were sitting in the den, and all of a sudden we heard this tremendous crash in the kitchen. <laughs> and I felt about this big. And what I feared was true. I shared that story to open up his funeral. Because when I learned that he had died, it made me feel like life just comes crashing down when you lose someone like that that you love. 
But the miraculous, wonderful thing about Eddie Hatfield, his memory and his influence was so great that just as that fixture shattered into a thousand pieces, even in his death, the gospel influence of his life just spread. Matthew 14 is a hard text. But this is the way that the whole thing works. The birth pains, they only get more intense the closer we return, we come to the return of Jesus in the parousia. And the closer we get there, life will often feel like it's shattered. But church, the pain will quickly be forgotten in the joy of Jesus' return. I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes as we get ready to move into a time of invitation. Jesus makes it so clear. I'm so thankful he tells us what's coming. We can be ready. We can share the gospel. The whole point of this text is that we can live with faithfulness and share Jesus with passion. If you're here today without a relationship with him, I just invite you to consider the claims of who Christ is. There is no other name under heaven by which you can be saved. If you will transfer your hope and your trust in the finished work of Jesus, in the true gospel that Jesus has done it all so that you can know him, you can become a Christian today. But for all of us here, the challenge is to live each day faithful before him, to stay anchored to him, to not get distracted by the deception and the dystopia and the discrimination that is sure to come, but to stay looking unto him, the author and perfecter of our faith. And if there's any area in your life that you have been rocked, I just invite you as we sing in a moment, just to repent, just to turn to him, trust him in an even deepening way so that you can live your life ready for his return. So that when he comes back, you'll be found to be one who is faithful to the end. That's our prayer. Father, we just thank you so much for this time. And I pray that you will use this invitation as you deem fit. Thank you so much for your truth. And in Christ's name we pray.